0: I'd like to just begin by reading uh, what we have covered so far. So this will be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 21, and then we will pick up today with verse 22. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, starting in verse 22. Peter speaks of us, of us as Christians, as a people. He emphasizes our unity and togetherness, but even more than that, the language that he uses is that of forsaking one's own identity and being subsumed into a greater thing. Now this is a foreign idea to us sitting here, perhaps even anathema. We are Americans. We live in the land of rugged, self-made individualism. And so the idea of letting go of your ego and being absorbed into some other thing uh, is strange if not offensive. We define ourselves by what makes us unique, not um, not what conforms us to our tribe. And you even see this in the language that we use in our American church to talk about our faith. We speak of making a decision for Christ, having a personal relationship with him, when we talk of holiness, we're referring to, to me and you individually and our own acts of discipline and obedience, but this is not at all the context in which Peter was writing. Peter came from a Middle Eastern culture. He was raised in a corporate national religion, and so he would have approached the idea of unity, of being a people, from the absolute opposite direction. Um, a good illustration would be, uh, for example, here in the U.S., when you, when you go out to dinner, um, once the first person orders something, the odds of anyone else at the table ordering that same thing plummet to way below random. But in China, a very conformist culture, it's the reverse. Once the first person orders something, the odds of anyone else at the table ordering that same dish go way up. They value different things, and they come from a different culture. And it's not exactly the same thing as the Hebrew culture, of course, but as we're reading a book that Peter, a Hebrew man, wrote to other Hebrews, it's important to recognize that he is coming from a culture that is more like that conformist culture than it is like us. He's approaching from, again, the, the opposite direction. Um, this is not to say that those, those presuppositions, that language of faith that we use is wrong. It is absolutely true that we are individually saved. We will be individually judged on judgment day for our individual actions. We are individually adopted by God and we, we, we do and can have a personal relationship with Christ. And that is a glorious, incredible thing. I just want you to realize that the places in Scripture that talk about those things, and when we use those phrases, though we take them for granted, to the audience of the day or to the audience that Peter was writing to, those would have been the foreign ideas. The, the radical idea to Peter would be that you could have a personal relationship with God, not merely a corporate or a national one. That was unusual to him. Whereas for us, it's the opposite, that we can have a relationship with God as a people. That's strange to us. So just keep that in mind. Um, When the Bible talks about things like being a people, like being unified, being together, um, recognize that, that our presuppositions can often cloud our judgment about what exactly those things mean. We think about them in a certain way we carry certain assumptions to the table about what it means to be unified or to be a people, um, but they may not necessarily be true. So just like the the cultural assumptions that Peter brought to the table would make something like a personal relationship with God somewhat unusual, somewhat unexpected to him, uh, so also when we approach a text that talks about being a people, despite the fact that that may be unusual or unexpected, we need to take God at his word, and we need to make sure to understand what is meant, even if it is difficult or unusual or unexpected for us. Um, All this is to basically say that in these next few passages, I will be spending comparatively less time talking about the individual aspects of our faith and much more time discussing the corporate aspects of our faith, mostly because that is where we need the most understanding. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And at the risk of preaching one sermon in two parts, uh, this week I will mostly be talking about how we become a people and then the next time I preach out of First Peter, which I think will be in the new year actually, um, we'll move on to the next few verses which talk about what we do as a people. Um, so let's now turn to the text. Uh, we have already read up through verse 21 and now we will be beginning in verse 22 and continuing on through chapter two, verse three. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So as we engage with this passage, let's bear in mind the greater context of the letter. First, as I said last time, we know that Peter is writing as a Christian who is suffering to other Christians who are suffering. And uh, though he did not know it at the time, the greatest suffering was very soon to come. Not only were the Christians suffering through persecution, but also in the merely common mundane ways, the daily ways that we all suffer, sickness, financial stress, relational conflict, just the the general suffering that comes about in our lives due to living in a sin-stricken world. Um, So all that he writes in this letter is under the general heading of suffering and how we deal with it. Uh, more specifically, we also recall that in the, the passage immediately preceding the one we're dealing with today, Peter is writing to us about holiness. He is teaching us what holiness is, uh, from where it comes, and how it holds us up in our times of suffering. And so he then directly transitions into his teaching on brotherly love. In verse 22, he says, having purified your souls. Now that we've discussed purifying your souls, having talked about holiness, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This verse in particular, but also the others, point in the direction of our main point for today. Look at all the adjectives that Peter uses to talk about this brotherly love sincere, earnestly, from a pure heart, later on, imperishable. These are all words that qualify the true love from a false or lesser love. He is parsing out the correct from the incorrect and teaching us what it looks like for Christians to love one another. And so our main point for today is that Christian love within the church looks a certain way. It's obvious, of course, everything looks a certain way. um, And, you know, we, we all come to this text with the understanding that obviously you can't just do whatever you want and call it love. We're all on board with that. Um, but what's less obvious is exactly how far God's expectations for our love for one another take us. What is expected? It's easy to say what's not expected. We, we can't, you know, talk behind one another's backs and, you know, throw tomatoes at each other and expect people to believe that we love each other. But, but what is expected? Um, so, As we try to answer that question, let's first acknowledge that the general idea of loving each other is widely accepted to be a good thing. The majority of people that you talk to, uh, I, I dare not say everyone because there are always people that believe really, really crazy things, but the vast majority of people that you would speak to would say, yeah, it's good to love one another sure yes yeah we should be loving to one another absolutely uh, and and you know when someone is sick their friends bring them dinner that's great when a stranger falls down you know another stranger comes and helps them up that's a that's a perfectly ordinary good thing that, that most people agree is is excellent and, and even when someone does something well we you know we share with them a word of encouragement a pat on the back so our common wisdom is correct in this case uh, we, we call this common grace, which is just simply where God gives a gift to humanity, not only to the elect, but to all humanity for our own good and his glory. And so the, the mere fact that we have some sort of innate morality that teaches us that it's good to love one another is evidence of God's common grace to all mankind. It, it is good. So then why is Christian love than something special? Why is Peter taking the time to teach us what it means to sincerely, to earnestly, to purely love one another as a people? Um, And I I find three ways that we're going to look at in the text today. Um, First, our love as Christians is, is intimately connected to our holiness. Secondly, it is connected to our hope. And third, our Christian love is connected to our assurance of salvation. So first, let's see how Peter connects our love to our holiness. Um, The first two verses mostly address this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So first, we should note that our definition as Christians of love is somewhat different than the common usage the common wisdom that we talked about earlier, the, the love that many people can agree on and most people agree that it's good to show, uh, it, you know, it comes out of our experience, it comes out of our, our, our personal desires, it comes out of our innate sense of morality. Uh, but our distinctly Christian love actually has its source in a different place than merely our, our internal selves or our feelings. Um, so, breaking down these verses more carefully, we recognize that we're coming hot off the heels of Peter's last topic, which is holiness. And Peter now says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. So we see here that holiness is a a prerequisite for a sincere love. Uh, But also, holiness is an outworking of that love. We love each other earnestly from a pure heart. We also love each other sincerely for a pure heart. So our definition of love is unique, not merely anchored by our personal assertions or feelings, but demonstrated sincerely through our pursuit of holiness, both in ourselves and in one another. And the reason that definition is unique is because, again, the source of our love is unique. See in verse 23, in particular, the the word since. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We love each other in a holy way since we have been born again. And so therefore, in order to truly love one another, purely, earnestly, and sincerely, we must take holiness in ourselves and in the body seriously. You cannot love one another sincerely and not care for your own and their obedience. If we are to be a people, a people of God, we must desire to be a holy people, for God is holy holy. If you do not desire holiness, if you're not seeking to conform yourself and your people more to the character of God, then you cannot sincerely love your brothers and sisters as we're commanded to do. And you may now be thinking uh, a common rebuttal might be, how, how can you tell me or more accurately, how can the Bible tell me what I do and do not feel? If I, if I feel that I love someone and am being loving to them, surely that must be, at least in some sense, true. But let me respond with this. What would make you think that your, your feelings of sincerity, your intentions, or your view of yourself makes reality such? We all know that wanting something to be a certain way doesn't make it so. Just ask anyone who hopes that they win the lottery. And so what if true sincerity, true and pure brotherly love is not defined by your motive, but rather by the standard which God sets in his word and created for his people? Whether you feel sincere or not, God needs you to know That if you do not love out of holiness and for holiness, it is not a sincere love. And likewise, our love for one another, in order to be pure and sincere, it must be desirous of each other's holiness. I cannot purely love you, my brother or sister, if I do not sincerely also wish you to be holy. To love you while caring nothing for your obedience would be a lie, both to you and to myself." And again, so you say, how how can you tell me whether or not I I do or do not sincerely love someone? If I want them to be happy and I act in such a way that makes them so, then surely I love them. But again, I would say God is very clear. A love in me that does not earnestly desire a pure heart in you is not Christian love. This is why sometimes a church must remove someone from itself. If we truly love one another, then we love for one another to be holy. If we pursue the holiness of one another, we will sometimes be required in and out of love to confront sin. Lovingly, gently, and with a desire for nothing but holiness in ourselves and in each other. And sometimes, after all else fails, as a final act of love, we must remove a brother or sister from ourselves. Not because we don't love them, but because we do love them so much that we cannot stand for them to go on like this. And we act not only out of love for them, but out of love for all our other brothers and sisters in the body. If we are to be God's people, which is after all a holy people as God is holy, then we must be willing to love one another into holiness. God's people are not unholy and so if we allow unholiness to persist, how can we be God's people? And so we do these things, painful though they may be, because the source of our love, the wellspring from which it flows, is not our feelings, it is not our desires, it is not what we want for ourselves or what we want from others, but the source of our love is the living and abiding word of God. The very gospel of Jesus Christ is worked out practically and visibly when we love one another in a holy and sincere way into holiness. Our holy love for one another demonstrates the very power of Jesus' death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit living within us. And so, see now as we continue, as Peter connects our love and our holiness back to our hope in suffering. Verses 24 and 25. Peter writes, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, again, contextually, culturally, this, this sounds true, it's nice, but the original audience would have recognized this immediately. Peter is quoting from the book of Isaiah. Uh, this is um, out of Isaiah 40. Uh, And it's immediately after Isaiah prophesied to King Hezekiah that all of Israel will soon be taken to Babylon. Israel as a nation will be broken, displaced from their land, and made subject to a foreign and wicked nation. But then Isaiah delivers another prophecy, a promise of encouragement and of comfort to the people in spite of the great despair that is about to come upon them. So let me read to you from Isaiah 40. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And then continuing, So put this in the context of the suffering that we know Peter and the other Christians he's writing to are dealing with. This passage that he quotes from Isaiah is meant to be a comfort to the people of God when the people of God are certain that great suffering is just around the corner. Peter and his fellow Christians, they are being persecuted, they are suffering, and so Peter turns to this encouragement. He is preparing his readers, and therefore you and me, for suffering And he is doing it in the context of calling us to love one another and to be a people. We are to love one another out of holiness, which will result in our hope being securely planted in the unchanging Word of God. Please make sure that you connect the dots between Peter's above exhortation to brotherly love out of holiness to this encouragement in the face of imminent danger. They are not unrelated. Just like in, in 1 Peter 1.13, where we see that our hope is to be set fully on the grace of Jesus, and just like in verses 17 and 18, when we are told to be holy and we are empowered to do so by the imperishable work of, God, of, of Jesus, likewise, here in verse 23, we are told to love one another earnestly through the abiding word of God, which is the unfading and unchanging good news. At every point, Peter anchors his exhortation to you in the gospel. And so likewise here, he tells us to love one another in our suffering to and out of holiness because of the hope that is within us, thanks to the work of Jesus. So going all the way back to the beginning, just, when, just like when someone shows love to us in a human way, we receive human comfort. We may even take hope in that human love Likewise, we are to be comforted when our brothers and sisters in Christ sincerely love us and we love them, but so much more so. Not only are we comforted by the common grace, humanity, and compassion that's evident in our love for one another, but our love for one another is an example and a reminder and an outworking of the gospel, which is the very foundation of what we believe. When you share an encouraging word to someone who serves, you are both reminded of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in you. When you are hospitable and you open your home and share your possessions, you are declaring the completed work of Jesus Christ to God's people. When you gently rebuke a brother, earnestly desiring his obedience to scripture, you are affirming the holiness of the church, which is bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And all of these things ought to be a great comfort to you in suffering, not only because of the physical relief brought by acts of service and words of encouragement and care, and not only because of the spiritual vitality granted by those words and deeds, but because of the eternal hope-securing promise from which our, of which our love for one another is evidence. And so now we come uh, beginning to, uh, getting to the beginning of chapter two, which is uh, the, the transition between how we become a people and how we are to act as a people. Um, and at this point, Peter delivers a warning. But like many warnings in scripture, it also serves as an assurance. So now continuing in chapter two, verses one through three. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. These things that Peter warns us of, they are the killers of sincere love. They are the destroyers of unity. Those which tear down, which undermine the holiness of the church which makes a mockery of the gospel of our God to the world that is watching. And they sap our hope when suffering comes. Malice is the desire to see others torn down, often for your own gain. Deceit is dealing in the shadows and talking behind the backs of others. Hypocrisy, you do these things all the while while making much of your own goodness. Envy, and we do all of those because we think ourselves more deserving of the goodness that we see in the lives of others and slander. So therefore, we undermine them in secret without their knowledge, not loving them nor desiring their holiness as we would if we were speaking to them openly, but desiring their downfall as we speak to them in secret. And so then we find ourselves divided. We find ourselves without love. We find ourselves insincere, impure, without hope, without holiness, without assurance, without each other. Our growth into salvation is stunted, They're slowed, sometimes even revealed to be entirely false. I hope that the picture I paint is sufficiently grim. That you would be admonished to put these things away. They're evil. If you have truly tasted that the Lord is good, you must hate these things. Casting them aside and having nothing to do with them. We as Christian brothers and sisters must have nothing to do with malice, deceit hypocrisy, envy, or slander. Instead of malice, desire the best for others. Pray for them that they would be blessed and full of joy. Instead of deceit, deal openly. Bring your grievances before the Lord and then bear with your brother in public. Or if it is something that ought not be borne away, speak with him honestly and forthrightly. We serve the same God after all and desire the same holiness. Instead of hypocrisy, uncover yourself. Confess your sins to one another. We all know here that no one is righteous. We're all sinners in need of a savior and no man can be more drowned, more dead than any other. We are all made alive in Christ out of the same death. So do not hide yourselves from the people of God. Instead of envy, show gratitude. Encourage and appreciate one another. Serve one another. Put yourself last and build up the body of Christ. And instead of being a slanderer, Be a unifier. Be a peacemaker. Speak well of others when they're not present. Show honor to others even when criticizing them. Do not allow wrongs done to you to fester into bitterness, but cast them upon the Lord and upon the body and forgive. Finally, brothers and sisters, with this obedience, by acting in this way, assure yourselves of God's work in you. You seek the unity of the body loving one another earnestly and sincerely out of holiness and for the sake of holiness so that you might see that love as God's lavish gift to you and the very evidence of your salvation. See that Peter is not directing these commands, these these sins to avoid to the unbeliever. The lost have no need for unity or brotherly love or holiness or assurance. They need new hearts and to be changed. But you who have tasted that the Lord is good, show it. So I then would pose a question to us as a body, uh, a a question that is applicable not just to anyone who is listening or, or, or any church, but to us. I wonder where we, where Christ's covenant, where this body would be if we loved each other like we ought. Could we have weathered these storms more faithfully? Have we been more dedicated to loving one another in this way? And I recognize it's impossible to prove a counterfactual. Uh, No one but the Lord knows how things might have been or what could have happened. And there are countless factors involved that could never be analyzed and interpreted enough to know things that we cannot know. We can never understand anyone else's motives or what subtle forks in the road were taken or missed. But God is clear in His Word as well that we have agency and we are responsible for our conduct, and our conduct does have consequences. So I find myself asking questions that eat at me. What if I had? Did I miss the chance to? Could this have been avoided somehow? I don't know. And I can't know. But more importantly, those very questions that I ask myself that bother me, they betray my own self-centeredness. Because I myself said at the beginning that individualism is not the way of the church. We're called to be a people, not a group of persons. And so the reality is that I could have done nothing by myself. We together, as a people, as God's people, might have. But that's in the past and can't be changed. So let me take the questions that I ask myself and reorient them properly to us. And let me ask not what I, but what we, and not could have done, but can yet do. What can we do to love one another sincerely as a people of God? Can we be more hospitable so that our love for one another grown over shared bread will cover over an offense? Can we be more encouraging, seeking out ways to honor one another and tolerating no gossip so that we can overcome our conflicts without division? Can we be more honest about our lives, our sufferings and our sins so that we can bear one another's burdens? Can we be disciples who make disciples, investing in and pursuing one another to read the word and pray together for holiness? Can we be more committed to the destruction of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander so that those insidious sins will shrivel away and die instead of uprooting us? And can we love one another more sincerely and more purely, loving one another enough to be gently, seriously honest about sin so that we can grow together into salvation instead of apart? These are questions that eat at me and I try not to get bogged down in what might have been. And I try to think about what can yet be. Brothers and sisters, the word of our Lord stands forever. It is the gospel on which our faith stands. Our gospel has not changed. Our hope has not changed. Our calling has not changed. We are God's people, and that has not changed. Our love for one another has not changed. So live like it. Open your homes to one another. Provide, care for the sick and the needy and the downtrodden. Read the Bible together. Pray with one another and for one another. Sincerely, do these things. Invite people into your homes. Read a passage of scripture together. Talk about it. Pray about it. Ask each other how things really are. Be honest when people ask you how things really are. These are the small and simple foundations of our sincere brotherly love for one another that comes out of the gospel that we believe in and they should be overflowing and evident in our lives for after all, we are to be known by our love for one another. So step into each other's loneliness and sadness, into each other's joy and victory. Inquire of the fears and insecurities of your brothers and sisters. Encourage them. Be grateful to one another. Bear with one another. Be patient and forgiving. Refuse to gossip or slander. Seek one another's holiness out of a pure heart, even when it means tough conversations. Let yourself be sought by others. Tell the truth when someone asks how you're doing. Confess your sins. Reveal your suffering. Ask for help. Ask for forgiveness. Tell each other when you can serve and when you need care. And in this way, through this sincere love, which we have through the abiding and unchanging word of God, we will grow up together into salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your children, brothers and sisters, co-heirs together with Jesus. You have adopted us into your family. We are now to be a people for your own possession And as that people, you have taught us to love one another. Lord, soften our hearts. Dust away the cultural artifacts, the individualism, the selfish tendencies that we have in ourselves and make room for a pure and sincere love for one another. Let us be radically, ordinarily loving to one another. Please change us and make us like that. God, please comfort us in our suffering, be it our corporate suffering that we share together or those goings-on in our individual lives for which we need hope. Let our love for another encourage us and assure us of your salvation. Let our love for one another lift us up to be your people before you and before the world. Father, all of this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, upon whom, death and resurrection, we can love one another.